0: chapter fourteen of australia new zealand and some other islands of the south seas by frank g carpenter this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by betty b the state-owned railways in making the trip from sydney to melbourne i was painfully reminded of the worst feature of railroading on this continent at albury on the frontier between new south wales and victoria i was routed out of my berth at daylight and compelled to change cars although the central government controls the telephone and telegraph services of australia the railroads are owned by the states and since each has a different gauge for its tracks passengers and goods must often be transferred the lines in queensland western australia and tasmania which are not contiguous states have a narrow gauge the tracks in victoria are five feet three inches in width As are those of the main lines of South Australia. Only New South Wales and the Transcontinental Line, built by the Commonwealth Government, have the world standard gauge of four feet eight and one half inches. In going from Brisbane in Queensland to Perth in Western Australia, one must change five times because of differing track widths, and this is one of the reasons why the thirty five hundred mile journey takes practically six days such conditions cost more than time for example the transfer charges on freight between new south wales and victoria range from thirty to seventy cents a ton imagine what it would mean in the united states if passengers and freight had to be moved from one train to another every time a state line was crossed ever since the states formed the commonwealth there has been much discussion of the unification Of these conflicting railroad gauges this is certainly one of australia's greatest needs but so far the expense has proved prohibitive a commission of three eminent engineers an englishman an australian and an american recently reported that to convert all the existing lines in the commonwealth to the standard gauge would cost about two hundred and ninety million dollars this would mean an expenditure of more than fifty dollars for every man woman and child in Australia. It has also been proposed to standardize the chief routes connecting the five state capitals on the mainland at a cost of about $90 million. But just now, even this seems more than the country can afford. Yet the diversity of gauges imposes such a burden on Australian business that some day unification will have to come. At present, there are about 26,000 miles of railways on the continent of which twenty three thousand miles are owned and operated by the states twenty eight hundred are privately owned and the rest are in the hands of the commonwealth government this is about one-tenth the mileage of the united states which has approximately the same area but twenty times as many people most of the australian railroads are like the bulk of the population on the eastern side of the continent the great tropical northern territory has only one railroad which is but 200 miles long. In each state, the lines are operated by one or more commissioners appointed by the cabinet. The Minister for Railways directs legislation and answers questions in the state parliament, but otherwise the commissioners have a free hand. Federal lines are managed by a railway commissioner for the Commonwealth. In Sydney, I asked a member of the New South Wales Railroad Commission whether he thought government control of the railroads was a good thing. He replied, there is no doubt of it. The results have been so good that we are convinced that such management is for the best interests of the people. We are giving a better service at less cost than private roads could do. But how about the political end of the machine, I ask? Do not the politicians try to manage the commissioners and control the vote of your employees? No, was the reply. Our laws provide that we shall be absolutely free. The Government does not dictate to the Chief Commissioner and his three assistants. We have our own staff of officials whom we appoint and no promotion can be made without our consent. We have about 40,000 employees in this State alone and we are careful to do them justice. We hold a court every other Wednesday to which our men can appeal if they have grievances. There are many such appeals and about one-third of them are settled in favor of the men. How about wages and hours of work? We have the eight-hour day, and we pay higher wages than do the European railways. Our men are better treated than those of any railroad I know. They are under the civil service, and no man can be removed except for cause. How about the profits? Do your railroads pay, I ask? Yes. We usually manage to show a small surplus after meeting interest charges on the capital invested but our revenue fluctuates from year to year according to whether there is a good or a poor season for farming and sheep raising. In unfavorable seasons, the carriage of fodder and the transfer of stock to better pastures at reduced rates mean smaller earnings and larger operating expenses. Extensions into thinly settled districts also cut down the net income since several of these lines earn little more than the cost of maintaining them. Nevertheless, we are pushing out roads into the good territory, knowing that settlement will soon follow and that the new lines will ultimately become profitable. Another prominent official with whom I talked on this subject is a Queensland railroad man. Said he, as far as I can see, the government control of our railways has been an excellent thing for the state. It has given us profitable railways which could never have been built by private parties. Take our Rockhampton line for instance. It begins at the coast and runs 400 miles westward through a thinly populated country. When it was first completed, there were places on that line where one could ride 100 miles without seeing a town. But the railroad made the land on both sides of the track available for sheep raising. It is now taken up for pastures and there are hundreds of flocks feeding upon it. Towns have sprung up along the line and in time the road will pay well. How about the profits on the Queensland roads, said I. If there are any, they are never large, was the reply. You see, we don't want a big profit, for it is our principle to keep the rates for freight and passengers as low as we can. As the lines make more money, we shall lower the rates and increase wages. Are you satisfied with the narrow gauge, I ask? Yes, it pays us better than the broad gauge, our roads cost only about half as much per mile to build as those of new south wales and they furnish all the transportation required where do you get your equipment i ask we used to buy most of our rolling stock from england but now as in the other australian states our locomotives and cars are built at the state railway shops our shops are at ipswich which is close to big coal deposits we buy steel rails from the steel mills at newcastle and about the only equipment we now get from abroad are patented devices and specialties. I may add that not all those to whom I have talked are so favorable in their reports on the state-owned railways. One man reminded me that in most cases, these lines, operated in the interests of the people, charges high freight and passenger rates as do our privately owned roads in the states. Another calls attention to the fact that sometimes for four years running, The Australian lines have shown considerable losses and capital is by no means always certain of the four percent dividend it has a right to expect from them. One thing that strikes one about the Australian locomotives and passenger and freight cars is the fact that they are much lighter than those to which we are accustomed. The freight cars seem particularly small and light. In my trips over the country I have passed hundreds of slat-sided cars transporting livestock the sheep cars are double-deckers the australian wheat goes to market in open-top cars instead of in box cars as with us and is handled in sacks instead of in bulk the wheat export amounts to one hundred million bushels a year and most of it is shipped overseas in bags i have seen enormous stacks of full wheat bags along the railways and at the ports as the grain is harvested in the dry season there is no danger of its fermentation when bagged and stacked in this way. Neither is there much risk of its getting wet, for it is often covered with tarpaulin, both in the stacks awaiting shipment and on the cars. There is considerable loss, however, every year from rats and other vermin. Since she got her grained elevators at Sydney, New South Wales has been building special grain cars for handling wheat in bulk. The ties for Australia's railroads are furnished by her eucalyptus forests many of which contain splendid timber the tasmanian blue gum a species of eucalyptus is one of the most durable of woods it has twice the strength of english oak and used as railroad ties or paving blocks in the tasmanian climate it has a life of from fifteen to twenty years in the dry air of victoria blue gum sleepers last twice as long the jarrah a eucalyptus of western australia has been known to withstand fire better than iron girders this wood is one of the few that will resist the white ants and sea bores make no impression upon it i've heard that jarra piles driven at port adelaide in eighteen sixty eight is another remarkably durable eucalyptus of western australia much used for ties Kerry is another remarkably durable eucalyptus of western australia much used for ties carry planks from ships dismantled after 30 years of service have been sawed up to make paving blocks, and a log of this wood that had lain 46 years in mud below high water mark was reported perfectly sound by a government expert. One of the biggest railroad undertakings of modern times was building the Australian Transcontinental Line for a thousand miles across the desert. Until this was completed, Western Australia was cut off from her sister states by a great waste of sand and could communicate with them only by telegraph or by sea. The ocean journey from Perth to Sydney took seven days. Neither Western Australia nor her neighbor South Australia felt able to finance an unprofitable railroad joining them together. So it became the job of the Commonwealth government, which began the line in 1912 and completed it five years later. The overland journey from Adelaide, South Australia, to Perth on the coast of Western Australia used to take two months. By train, it now takes two days. Besides decreasing the time between Western Australia and New Zealand or America, the railroad shortens the trip from London to Melbourne or Sydney by almost a week. Preparing the roadbed and laying the track across the level stretches of the desert were easy matters. The real problem was providing water and supplies for the two construction gangs as they worked toward each other across the hot and arid wastes, unwatered and uninhabited, save by hordes of flies and mosquitoes, four hundred and twenty-five miles west of Port Augusta. The railroad enters the mulabar plain, a vast, empty limestone plateau on which there is not a single water-hole. Here it runs in a bee-line. For 330 miles, the longest straight stretch of track in the world. The rest of the route is through sandhill Country, where there are, at intervals, natural rock catchment basins for water. Although this region is called a desert, there is an annual rainfall of from 2 to 5 inches, and this was caught in great, roofed-over reservoirs and saved for the use of the workers. For some time, the question of water supply on the Nulabar Plain, threatened to hold up indefinitely the construction of the transcontinental. Then a message came from Kalgoorlie, telling the good news that water had been found on, or rather under, the plain. The engineer in charge wired that he had pumped out 70,000 gallons from an artesian bore about 300 miles east of Kalgoorlie. Another bore, 100 miles farther east, struck brackish water usable for locomotives. These two wells now furnish water sufficient not only for the railroad, but for limited irrigation and pastoral purposes besides. There are tanks every 50 miles across the plain, connected by a pipeline from the Kalgoorlie Reservoir. While the transcontinental was being built, and before the pipe and the tanks were constructed, water for 200 horses, 300 camels, and 1,200 workmen had to be brought by cars and on camelback. At one time it was carried 300 miles by tank cars and 30 miles by camels to the eastern end of steel at a cost of $39 for each thousand gallons. To supply the western railhead, water was piped for 350 miles to a big reservoir and then hauled 220 miles to the construction camps. Without the aid of camels, it is probable that the transcontinental never could have been built. The ships of the desert took the engineers on the preliminary survey of the line. They bore the men who went along the route looking for wells and water holes, and later on they were the indispensable carriers of water and construction materials over miles of wasteland and through months of overpowering heat. Every effort was made to provide endurable conditions for those who worked on the railroad. The chief engineer and his staff lived on camp trains specially designed for desert use the trains consisted of seven or eight coaches built with double roofs to give protection from the sun all the openings were screened against the swarms of flies mosquitoes and other insects there were besides a car for stores a well-equipped hospital car and cars with living and sleeping quarters for the staff the workmen lived in small light huts of canvas and wood which could be knocked down and moved as they had to be about every three days like the cars each of the huts used for sleeping quarters had an extra roof the heat was often so intense that at midday it was sometimes impossible to work for rails sleepers and everything else were too hot to touch the thermometer frequently registered 130 degrees in the shade supplies of clothing and food were brought up from the warehouses at the eastern and western terminals of the road on what were known as tea and sugar trains. The men were well-fed, and their daily menus included not only bread and meat, but even fresh fruit and vegetables. It cost $30 million to build the Transcontinental, but this sum is not considered unduly great in view of the obstacles overcome. Except for the money spent in supplying water, the expenses were not large. In no part of the route does the track cross a river or climb a steep grade comparatively few common laborers were required construction was simply a matter of making an even bed for the sleepers then placing the rails with a track layer and bolting and spiking them down the road moved forward at the rate of a mile a day the world war slowed up the work for many of the construction force enlisted nevertheless at the end of five years eastern and western railheads met and today is possible to go by train from perth to brisbane on a route joining all the capitals of the five mainland states. The transcontinental may perhaps never pay in pounds, shillings, and pence. In time saved, however, it has already proved itself invaluable, and, what is more important, it serves to bind all parts of the commonwealth more closely together. End of chapter 14